Good morning. The reading today is from John chapter 3, verses 26 through 36. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. I I would argue, my friends, that the rise of social media uh, in this country, in this world, did not make us self-centered. Okay? It simply gave us new tools to promote our own image, right? And to secure the approval that we have been craving for ourselves since the dawn of time. And it gave ordinary people like us power to to reinforce our sense of personal worth or personal identity by, by gathering, no joke, a worldwide following of friends. And so we write a post, the more raw the better, the less filtered, the better, apparently. We upload a picture, carefully curated, to make sure everybody sees exactly what we want them to see. We update our status, and then we watch as the retweets and the comments, hopefully positive, and the little like symbols, whatever those are, look like these days, come rolling in. They're, they're, I'm not downing social media categorically, I am saying that in many respects, it has become the new currency of self-esteem. But I would also argue that you don't even have to be on social media. You you might be, I'll just, I won't ask for a show of hands, a dumb user of a smartphone in this room. (laughs) You're not at all on social media, but you don't have to be in order to be consumed with what people think of you. I think every one of us, if we're being honest, is intimately familiar 
with this desperate struggle to, to measure up in, in what I will call the courtroom of human opinion. So that could be to measure up to your spouse, it could be measure up to your parents, your boss, your in-laws, your friends. But I would argue that struggle is a battle you can never win because it's a race with no finish line. Think about this, okay? As, as soon as we think we've, we've secured the approval we crave, what do we have to do next? What do we have to do? We have to go right back to that treadmill of pleasing people so that we don't want, lose the approval we already have. You see, you can't, you can't get out of that cycle. And if we're not careful, every interaction we have with another human being can, can become this kind of functional referendum on your personal worth and value. So, so what sort of advice does the world give you or give us to those who, who find themselves kind of stuck in that cycle? What, what, what advice, what solution, the world we live in, would it bring to us and say, here, try this. If you're drowning in a sea of other people's opinions or, or what is often called codependency, well, that standard advice usually sounds like this. Stop worrying <laughs> about what other people think you should do and focus on what? Doing what you think you should do, on what you wanna do, right? On what you believe is right. You, how, how does it go? You be you, right? You be you. Don't worry about them. You be you. And then just let the chips fall where they may. And if everybody else has a problem with that, well, that is on them. But I'd argue that doesn't work either in the long run. Because we just exchange one form of slavery for another. Okay? And if this is a new thought, think carefully with me here. Once I was ruled by other people's opinions of me, but now I'm ruled by what? My opinion of myself. And sometimes, certainly in my experience, our, our own conscience, our own inner critic feels harder to please than everybody else combined. Can any of you relate to that? And so here's where the message of Christianity and what we discover in John 3 at the end of the chapter brings real freedom, friends. Real freedom, okay? Because Christianity says the point of your life isn't to make much of yourself at all. Whether in other people's eyes or your own, the point of your life is to make much of Jesus. That the true secret to joy isn't impressing other people or impressing yourself let's add that, with how great you are, it's devoting all that you are and all that you have to showing everyone just how great Jesus is. To put it succinctly, joy is found in making much of Jesus, not yourself. And we make much of Jesus, the, the preeminent son of God, 
through obedient trust in the Son of God. Those are the two points of the sermon this morning, okay? That's what we discover in John 3, that joy is found not in in making much of yourself, but in making much of Jesus. And how do we do that? We make much of Jesus, the preeminent son, through obedient trust in Jesus. So let's look at each of those points in this chapter. First, the joy is found in making much of Jesus, not yourself. So verses 22 to 24 kind of give us the context here. So just a little bit of background, quick review. Uh, Before Jesus' public ministry began, the Lord sent a final prophet, or what's often called a forerunner, named John the Baptist, to prepare the way. And, And John told people to repent. What's that? A big word preachers use. No, well, it is. But but it's not hard to understand. Okay, to repent is simply to turn from sin, away from sin, and back to God. That's what John was preaching. And those who heeded his message were baptized. Okay, they were immersed in water as a rite of purification and an expression of consecration to the Lord. And at the same time, while John and his followers were doing that, he kept saying, guys, an even better baptism is on the way. It's on the way. John 1, 26, I baptize with water, he said, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And John the Baptist said that because he knew that God himself was about to arrive on the scene. And guess what? The very next day, John tells us, the author of the fourth gospel, John the Baptist saw Jesus walking toward him. And so so he cried out, guys, he's here. He's here. This is the one I told you about, the son of God, the lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And he he won't just baptize you with water like I am, purifying you on the outside. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What will he do? He will purify you from the inside out. That's what he declared. And that promise is a promise that Jesus fulfilled several years later on the day of Pentecost. Okay, in Acts 2, when, when he poured out the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit on his people. But, but we're not there yet in John 3, right? That, that has yet to happen. And so at this point in his ministry, Jesus and his disciples, they joined John the Baptist in in practicing water baptism for the repentance of sin. So the whole setup is you've got Jesus and his disciples baptizing people over here, and you have John and his disciples baptizing people over here. And in that setting, a question arises. And I imagine this question was one that had been growing in the hearts and minds of John the Baptist's disciples for some time. And we find it in verse 26. Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Now, perhaps... 
Like this is the most charitable reading possible. <laughs> All they want is just to know what John thinks. Perhaps, hey John, are you okay with people flocking to Jesus instead of you? I mean, we're great with that, you know, but we just want to know if you were. It's possible you could take it that way, but, but I think the tone of their words, and I tried to even read it this way to bring this out, suggests something quite different. Because they seem jealous of Jesus' popularity. When, when they first started baptizing people, John the Baptist's followers, they were the happening place to be, right? But now, what's happened? Everyone's run into the church next door. <laughs> They're, what, what did they say? Look back at verse 26. All are going to him. Now, you ever heard a young child? You're like, you never give me dessert. It's, all are going to him. They're all going to Jesus. Friends, we are not immune. Even in the church, even in Christian ministry. Okay? To attempting to build a personal following to trying, because we want this, to get people to make much of us. And then succumbing to bitter jealousy if, if we don't get the affirmation and encouragement that we crave. All right, so let's just give some examples lest we all sit here and think, oh, never me, Matthew. Let's say you see somebody new on a Sunday morning. And you take initiative to reach out. You've had some good conversations. They seem genuinely grateful for your initiative, your care. But, but after a while, you just, you start having a little trouble kind of nailing down a time to meet. Sounds like, oh, that's funny. Maybe they're just busy. But then you learn they've really connected with somebody else in the church. And they decided to go to their community group instead of yours. And though you might not stay on the outside, you're thinking, Lord, how come every time I move towards somebody, I don't get anything in return? Where's the reciprocation? All I want, you know how long I've been praying for just one friend? How come nobody ever pursues me? Example two. <laughs> Let's say you invest a lot of time in discipling a young adult in the church. And everything's going great. You know, it's, it's mutually encouraging for the both of you. You see significant leadership potential in them. And one day you're sitting down at lunch. It's like, hey, I didn't see you. I got something to tell you, man. Well, what's that? Well, I feel like God's calling me to another congregation. So, say what? Yeah, I, I think God wants me to go to a, a church down the road. Really appreciate all the time you spent investing in me, pouring into me preaching reps you've given me. Okay, I'll pray for you. Maybe. <laughs> and then six months later, you see them at a graduation party and they just start going on and on about all the amazing spiritual growth they've seen in their life since they went to the other church. Why? And you smile because you're supposed to, but on the inside you're thinking, 
why can't people ever come from other churches to my church? Or maybe you've served faithfully in a ministry capacity, Christian, and you've never really been recognized for it. Or maybe you used to serve in a particular role, but, but recently somebody else more gifted has come along and taken your place. I, mean, I, I could just keep going, right? Because scenarios abound where we are sorely tempted to bitterness and jealousy, even in Christian ministry. Why, why couldn't they stay in our church? Why couldn't they thank me for my service? Where's my reward? Where's my honor? Where, where's my relational or leadership return for my money? Why is everyone so unwilling to make much of me? Well, if like me, and please don't ever fear to have lunch with me and tell me you're going to another church, okay? If, if like me, you find that it is so easy to get stuck in that merry-go-round of, why can't you make much of me? Well, the Lord has help for us here. Okay, and it's, it's found in John's response to his own disciples in verses 27 to 30. Think, think of this, friends, as the exit ramp from a life devoted to making much of me. Okay? So what's this ramp look like? Well, first, John reminds his followers of a foundational spiritual principle. It's kind of, you know, let's, let's lay a good foundation here, guys, if we're going to get off this crazy merry-go-round of, it's all about me. Here's what you got to know. You'll never be able to embrace the lane that God has created you to run in with gladness and joy apart from the work of God's spirit in your heart because it's God's spirit that gives us the humility we need to receive with humility the lane that God has set us to run in. Verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John recognizes there's this upside down logic to the kingdom of God, right? Where what the world says is valuable, you should be recognized and honored, you want to be in that role, not that role. God says that's foolishness. And what the world says is it's foolish. You, you don't want to serve in that unnoticed corner. You, you want a following, man. God says that's honored. And so we really need God's help to remember here what John told his followers to remember. And that's two things. With that as the baseline, he wants to remember two things, all right? Here's the first. Guys, you need to remember your identity. Remember your identity, verse 28. I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Just want you to think about those words. I am not the Christ. If we didn't have mask on, I would tell you all just to stand up and shout it together for a couple minutes. I am not the Christ. Why do we need to say that? Remember that because we forget that, right? I mean, you know, for grace to not forget that, that in every moment, every situation, every gospel ministry context, we need to remember we are not the Savior. We're not God. We're, we're creatures, right? Made in his image, saved by his blood, but we're not the creator. 
You, you cannot open blind spiritual eyes. You can't change a hard heart. You, we don't make relationships whole. We're not Christ. And so when you're tempted to make much of yourself as a parent by yelling a little louder or, or maybe piling on the consequences because tag on, I'm going to make that kid change. <laughs> what do you need to do? You need to remember, I'm not the Christ. Or, or how about if you're married and, and you're tempted to make much of yourself by badgering your spouse until they comply with your wishes? We need to remember you're not the Christ. Or, or when you're tempted to get angry because a leader in the church of all places has the audacity to suggest oh, that a certain ministry context is not the best fit for you. You need to remember you're not the Christ. Remember your identity, friend. You're not the Christ. We are far less essential in God's priorities and purposes than we like to think we are. We're not the Christ. Even as a pastor, right? I, can I get up and say, I will build this church? Nope. Who gets to say that? Jesus does. The same is true in your life. Remember your identity. Second, remember your role. Okay, look at verse 29, because John's illustration here, I think, is really provoking. What does he say to his followers? He's so kind. You know, he could have just said, guys, you're crazy. Like, it's Jesus. Shut up and get with the program. But no, he's, he's, he's a good father in the faith. Right? He's He's direct. But he, he walks them through how they can change. What, so what does he say? Verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. I, <laughs> imagine a wedding. Most of you have probably been to a wedding. Where in the middle of the ceremony... <laughs> You know, the best man, usually when I do weddings here, the, the best man is like, I'm up here, there's the bride, there's the groom, and then the best man's like right here trying to figure out what to do with his hands, right? So best man, imagine a wedding where the best man in the middle of the ceremony throws a public tantrum because the bride was given to the groom, not him. I mean... I don't think you've ever seen that. I haven't seen that. I hope I never see that. But, but I can imagine, just put yourself in that context. Would you sympathize with that best man? Would you say, oh, here's a tissue. I know it's so hard. No, right? No sympathy. You think, what's your problem, <laughs> right? I mean, if, if the best man at a wedding were to ever cut in front, you know, the bride's coming down the aisle and he cuts in front sort of uh, to the bridegroom and grabs the bride's hand, I think a fight would break out. And for good reason. Well, that's what John wants his followers to just kind of picture. And then to realize, oh yeah, I guess we're the best man with a tantrum, John, aren't we? Because friends, the church is Jesus' bride, not yours, certainly not mine as a pastor, 
Okay, the, the loyalty and affection and honor and devotion of God's people are ultimately reserved for him and for nobody else. And, and in John's day, you might not know this, but in John's day, it was actually the role of the best man, the friend of the bridegroom, to bring the bride to the groom in a Jewish wedding. And, and so in a spiritual sense, John recognizes that that's my role too. Not, not to build people into myself or acquire followers for myself. My role is to point people to Jesus, to bring people toward Jesus, to, and then to rejoice as they choose to follow Jesus. And here's the hard part, right? Wherever he leads. And so I love how John declares upon hearing how people were leaving him for Jesus. Think about this. What does he say? Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He doesn't just say, okay, that's right. At some point, this was supposed to happen. <laughs> or he doesn't just you know, seem okay with people leaving him for Jesus. He's, he's exceedingly glad, isn't he? He's exceedingly glad. Why? Because the bride has been united with the groom. And nothing brings him more satisfaction than to stand on the sideline as that union takes place and applaud and cheer and rejoice. And God's entrusted us with the same role today, Christians. Same role, to find our joy, not in getting people to make much of us, but rather in helping people to make much of him. And, and so John the Baptist, both his example and his exhortation here, challenge us with a critical question. I want you to ask yourself this question. Is the goal of your labor, if you're a Christian, not, not just within the walls of the church, but in everything you do, is your goal, be honest, to leave people impressed with you or impressed with Jesus. What, what gas, what motive, what desire is fueling your Christian ministry car? Is your aim in all your activities, big and small, for people to worship Jesus? Or, or does even the littlest part of your heart want them to worship Jesus, but, but you know, you too, if you've ever seen the, the movie Monsters Incorporated, Pixar, you know, the little uh, round green guy who's always trying to jump into the picture and when his, uh, what's his name, help me out. Sully. Sully, there we go. You know, when, when they get on a picture of the magazine and the logo completely blots out his face, you know what I'm talking about? He's just, oh man, he can't stand it, right? Is that you, friend? Does part of your heart want people to worship you too? You're not totally anti-worship Jesus, in theory. <laughs> we just kind of want to get in on the picture. We, we want to photobomb the glory of God. You can do that as a friend, as a spouse, as a leader, as a child, as a servant, as an employer, as an employee. You, you just... You want people to, I mean, love Jesus, but, but I think I'm pretty amazing. You should too. And, and John Calvin, a couple hundred years ago, 
because we haven't changed. We're still struggling with the same things and we will be till the Lord returns. He, he recognized the wickedness of selfish ambition for the praise of men, especially in the context of Christian ministry. When he wrote this, listen, those who win the church over to themselves rather than to Christ faithlessly violate the marriage which they ought to honor. It's an act of spiritual seduction, friends. Because you are robbing, you are stealing, you are luring and drawing away a devotion and affection, a loyalty and honor that God has reserved for Jesus Christ alone. You're like a guy who tries to get into a marriage so he can commit adultery with the other guy's wife. That's a big deal. And the Son of God will not stand idly by as we try to steal the heart of his bride. God's eternal commitment to his own glory, right, guarantees, verse 30, will come to pass. He must increase and we must decrease. Jesus must increase, we must decrease. Think think of it this way. Jesus is the sun, the blazing sun, in, in which the little candles of all our renown and human glory will inevitably, most assuredly, melt and be consumed. So to make much of yourself, try to convince others to join you is to chase a glory that is guaranteed to fade. Which is why I said earlier that lasting joy is only found in making much of Jesus. Why? Because that is a glory that will never fade and is not up for grabs and is not subject to the determination and evaluation of feeble men. He must increase, we must decrease. So so take care, friend. Okay, join me in taking care to work, to study, to rest, to speak, to dress, to spend in such a way that that anybody who is watching you finds their attention strangely drawn not to you, but to Jesus. And if you find myself, you know, yourself as I say that, you think, I think I'm doing a pretty good job. Stop. Maybe you are. I hope you are. Okay, humility doesn't always mean, you know, I'm a failure. Now there's grace, grace abounds. <laughs> but, but be humble and ask a fellow Christian for an honest assessment of you. You know, if you're married, ask your spouse. Maybe this takes some courage. Ask another Christian friend, whose glory do you think I'm living for? And don't, don't give me the right answer, you know? Are there places in my life where you see, ah, well, I wonder if over there, is that a struggle for you? You know, let's, let's create freedom. This is a biblical community, right? In conversation to ask and honestly answer questions like that. Our joy is found in making much of Jesus, not ourselves. Here's the second point. All right. How do we make much of Jesus? We're looking at the second half of this passage now. We make much of Jesus through obedient trust in Jesus. We make much of Jesus. How do we do this thing you're talking about, Matthew? Through obedient trust in Jesus. So, so let's think carefully here because in verses 31 through 36, it, it is a tour de force of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. 
Put your thinking caps on, all right? Because the question, I think John, the author of the gospel, now answers as he reflects on what John the Baptist has said is this. Why is Jesus' exaltation not just a divine necessity, but a personal joy? You know, because John doesn't, the Baptist doesn't say this, right? He doesn't say, you know, he must increase, I must decrease. And unfortunately, that's the way it has to be. <laughs> right? No, what does he say? He must increase, I must decrease. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So, so why, this is the question that John, the author of the gospel, seeks to answer as he reflects on what John the Baptist has said here. Why is it, why is it that making much of Jesus made John so exceedingly glad? Well, look at verse 31. In short, it's because he who comes from above is above all. Jesus, who comes from above, is above all. You, you are not above all, friend. Your friends are not above all. Your, your circumstances are not above all. Let's add this to the list. Whoever gets elected this fall is not above all. Jesus is above all. And power and, and beauty and excellence and purity and, and goodness and majesty and wisdom. He is utterly and eternally supreme. Nobody's greater than him. He, he's, not, he's not of the earth like John. He's the one who's descended from heaven. And, and as the majestic one, God the Son incarnate, what did he do? How did he display his glory among us? Look at verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Question, what has Jesus seen and heard? Well, from eternity past, he has been intimately acquainted with the glory and character and ways of God the Father. Think about that. What, what can you bear witness to? The cereal you had for breakfast? <laughs> what you watched on the news last night? I mean, some of us can't even remember that. You know, maybe what you saw as you walked your dog through your neighborhood this morning? Well, what, what is Jesus very witness to? Jesus gives us, check this out, a firsthand account of the character and ways of Almighty God. Not, not because someone else told him about God, but because he has been with God the Father from eternity past as the only begotten Son. And if you receive Jesus' testimony as the truth, if you lean the weight of your life on what he says about God, okay, centered in the gospel of salvation from sin and death, what are you doing? Well, you are affirming, you're, you're setting your seal, as it were, to the truthfulness of God himself. Why? Look at verse 34. Because Jesus speaks the very words of God. When Jesus speaks, God speaks. His, his testimony, Jesus' testimony, please hear this. It isn't just some religious teacher's fallible take on God. You know, in a world lined up with all kinds of people who have fallible takes on God. No. Jesus' testimony isn't isn't right in some ways and wrong in other ways. What is it? It's God's revelation of himself. Well, how do we know that? 
How do, how do we know that? How do we know that every word that came from the human mouth of Jesus is nothing less than the very word of God? We'll look at verse 35. We know it because God the Father gave God the Spirit to God the Son without measure. He's the anointed one, the one on whom God's Spirit descended, and what do we learn? Remained, right? Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Who is the Spirit in all those senses, in an unmeasured, unrestrained, unapportioned sense, resting on? It's resting on Jesus. And as Christians, we experience the power of God's spirit, Ephesians 4, 7, according to the measure of Christ's gift. But who's getting the spirit here without measure? It's Jesus. He's the spirit-filled man par excellence. And therefore, in and through his human nature, every, every thought he had, every desire he felt, every action he took, every word that he ever uttered, think about this, was fully and completely under the entire control and influence and government of the Spirit of God. And in the power of that Spirit, he only did what was pleasing to his Father, which is why we read in verse 35, the Father loves the Son. He was the beloved Son with whom the Father was well-pleased. And in response to his humble obedience, the father gave him authority over the entire created world. Verse 35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Psalm 2, verse 10, implication. Now therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. All things given into Jesus' hand. And can we agree together that that is really good news in an election year? Okay? That's really good news because political candidates play to our fears. Every mailer I have gotten, I mean, I'm almost, I'm just tired of it, right? My mailbox is full of these things. Every mailer I get plays to my fears by warning me of all the bad things that will happen if all things are given into the hand of the other guys. Right? That's how it works. But in contrast, a Christian does what? A Christian finds refuge in knowing that the Father hasn't given supreme authority. The Father hasn't given all things, and he's not about to give all things, and he never will give all things to the Republicans or the Democrats because he has already given all things to his son, Jesus. You gotta remember that, okay? Lest in the midst of all this fear and terror, you think, oh no! Well, that's what they want you to think. But what do we say as Christians? My God reigns. really comforting. And so it is the supremacy of Jesus that gave John such joy 
and can give you such joy, friend, in living your life to make much of him and not much of you. And if you wonder, okay, Matthew, how do I do that? Well, verse 36 ends with a very practical recommendation. Right? And and think of it this way. In light of Christ's supremacy, you're saying, how, what must we do to join John in making much of Jesus? Well, verse 36 is so practical. It, It gives us a clear, crystal clear recipe to experience the joy of making much of Jesus, not yourself. And it comes to us in the form of a a rather simple choice. Look at verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What's he saying? That That if you want to experience the gift of eternal life, the gift of forgiveness of sins, the blessing of of restored relationship with God, both now and forever, you must do what? What must you do? You must believe Jesus. Okay, and and that's a word that we're just gonna come back to again and again in John's gospel. You have to embrace Jesus. You have to trust Jesus. You have to rely on Jesus. Faith is what? Wholehearted reliance on Jesus to deliver you from the judgment you deserve. What's the alternative to that? Look back at verse 36. To not obey the Son and experience in your body and soul the full weight of the wrath of God you deserve. But I wonder if you wondered, why would John say, whoever does not obey the Son? Why doesn't he say, whoever does not believe? Well, I think there are two reasons, very quickly. First, the ground of our salvation is distinct from the ground of our condemnation, friends. Okay, if we are saved from the wrath of God, it will be through faith alone. All right, wholehearted reliance on Jesus to rescue us through the power of his life, death, and resurrection. But if we are condemned under the wrath of God, it will be because of our own willful disobedience of his holy law. And second, believing and obeying Jesus, please hear this, They really are two sides of the same coin. Two sides, same coin. You you can't have one without the other. You can't actually believe Jesus if you will not obey Jesus. And I'm not talking perfectly. I'm just talking faithfully, okay? And the only way we can ever obey Jesus, not just on the outside, but on the inside where it really counts at the level of what we love and cherish is if we first choose to believe and trust Jesus. And so in that sense, John leaves us here. He says, okay, given his supremacy, you ought to devote your life to making much of Jesus, not yourself. That's how you get off the merry-go-round of the fear of man and codependency. If you want to do that, it's going to require two things. Big things. You have to believe Jesus, trust him, and you have to obey him and do what he says. You want to put that together? We'll just go to Romans 1.5 where the Apostle Paul says it's about the obedience of faith. So be honest, friend. Please be honest as we prepare to respond to the Lord in song. Bruce, you can bring the band up here. Be honest. Is there something that Jesus says that you struggle to believe? 
Or is there something that Jesus tells you to do or tells us to do in his word that that you're reluctant to obey? If that's the case, I want you to share that with a Christian friend and ask them to pray for you. Because believing and obeying Jesus isn't this kind of box we check once and then get on to the rest of the life. It, It is a direction that we run, if you're a Christian, for your entire life. Why? Because our final salvation depends on us continuing to do that. Joy is not found in making much of yourself, friend. It's found in making much of Jesus because nobody's greater than him. How do we make much of Jesus? Through obedient trust in Jesus. And there is no better or more gladsome reason to get up in the morning on every day of your life than to make much of Jesus. Jesus. I'll leave you with the words of one of my favorites, J.C. Ryle. He writes, commenting on this passage, we can never have too high thoughts about Christ. We can never love him too much, trust him too implicitly, or lay too much weight upon him and speak too highly in his praise. He is worthy of all the honor that we can give him. He will be all in heaven. Let us see to it that he is all in our hearts on earth. May it be, friends. Let's stand and sing.